This morning for the sermon, we're going to read two texts together, the first of which is in 1 Samuel 2, if you would go ahead and begin turning there, and the second is Luke 1, 46 through 56, what is known as Mary's Magnificat. As you're turning in your Bible, please stand together. We do that to visibly express our reverence for God's written word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God will endure forever. This morning we begin hearing God's word from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now please turn over to Luke chapter 1. Beginning at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, <clears throat> generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you in weakness, and we are grateful for the strength that you offer to us in the work of your Son that comes to us by way of your Holy Spirit. And we pray now as we once more look to you through the reading and even the preaching of your word, that you would bless us, that you would increase our faith, our hope, and our love, and that you would receive glory and honor as you deserve from your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. It's been well said by many that music is the poetry of the soul. And when you think about it, uh, by it, that is, by music, we memorize the lines and the lyrics that guide us through our life. But I'm sure you would agree with me that not all music is equally valuable or even equally as good. 
In the secular world, we've given nicknames uh, to, to bands or composers who've written what we've titled one-hit wonders, uh, songs that seem to skyrocket to the top once, and you never hear of the artist again. And as I was looking at a list of them online, it appears that most of them were written in the 80s. <laughs> I'm not sure why that is, but it, it seems to be rock-solid history. And, and then there are those that become uh, what are dubbed the classics and go into the Hall of Fame and become the infamous uh, bands that we all know so well, like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Queen, Bob Marley. Uh, and then classical music takes us down a different trail where there are certain songs that become known uh, not simply for a handful of decades and make it in the Hall of Fame, uh, but rather are known literally for hundreds of years. And here you think about uh, great composers like Bach and Beethoven and Vivaldi and such lovely uh, composed pieces like the Hallelujah Chorus written in the 1700s and still sung today. A uh, shelf life that most songs and musicians will not enjoy. Today what we're looking at uh, is, in our text, the opposite of a one-hit wonder. It may be the one and only song recorded by Mary, but think about it now, uh, 2,000 years later, even longer uh, than that of Handel, we continue to celebrate what the Lord wrote through Mary's heart. And it raises a question, what makes a song great? Is it simply the style or, from a Christian view, as you know, is it actually the substance? And what makes this song so great, beloved, is the way that it glorifies God and leads us to not only glorify Him, but even to enjoy Him forever. So let's begin thinking about this, first by way of thinking about the source of Mary's song. Mary wrote a song. Mary, the mother of Jesus, composed a song is written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is, in a certain sense, Mary's song, but it is also a song that God, if you will, inspired and put upon the heart of this daughter of the covenant, that it might be sung by sons and daughters of the covenant and known very well. This song has a variety of different names. It is called uh, not simply Mary's hymn, but also Mary's hymn of praise, or as you know it, the Magnificat, uh, coming from a Latin phrase I can barely pronounce, Magnificat Mia Dominum, my soul magnifies the Lord. It not only has uh, several different names, it is a song that touches the heart of God's people down to this very age, the Magnificat, Mary's song of praise, Mary's hymn of praise. It has features, just giving a little bit of an overview uh, to the structure of it, uh, that are somewhat striking. It, it is filled with the Old Testament. In fact, as I read from 1 Samuel 2, and then we went from there to Luke 1, uh, you could not uh, arguably miss many of the allusions to the Old Testament. Mary's Magnificat is filled with, her, with the Bible, and it actually makes a fantastic little point. Mary's song is full of the Bible, but Mary never held a Bible like you and I do. So how did Mary's heart become so full of Scripture? It's because as a daughter of the covenant, she heard the word of God from the lips of her parents over and over and over. And then as a child and daughter of the covenant, she would assemble with the people of God on the Sabbath day and other days of the week. And there the people of God uh, would echo the word of God out loud. It's a point that I've made before and think is wonderful, uh, helpful to remind us. And that is uh, the faith as it was handed down from generation to generation of God's people was done so orally. It was not only spoken, 
It was at times even sung. And that ministry often began in the home. So this Song of Mary's is saturated with the Bible. Uh, she was raised in a generation that did not have what one author has dubbed, and I like this phrase, memorization phobia. There was not a fear of memorizing. Did you get it? It's a great phrase. Memorization phobia, uh, a fear of memorizing things, a fear of learning, a phobia that many have today. Young people, I want you to imagine a world before Siri where if you wanted to know something, you couldn't just push a button and ask a supposed invisible expert. You actually had to read something. And if you wanted to know something, uh, you actually uh, had to learn it. And that's the sort of day and age in which Mary grew up. Uh, she was not only raised in this, she was herself a deeply spiritual, scripture-minded young lady. And it's right to think about Mary in this way. Similar to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, Mary also was a barren woman who by the power of the Holy Spirit would conceive a child. Not in exactly the same way, uh, but there are similarities. The theme of barrenness is very important. You find it in the story of Hannah. You find it in the story of Elizabeth just before Mary in Luke 1. And then you find it in Mary herself. And so uh, because of this, Mary says uh, remarkable things that even Hannah herself said all the way back in 1 Samuel 2. There are a handful, about five uh, direct echoes. Both of these women say, My soul magnifies the Lord. Holy is his name. God has scattered the proud, but he has lifted up the humble. And finally, the hungry he has filled with good things, yet the rich he has sent away empty. One of the things that they have in common, which might also or potentially make you even a little bit uncomfortable, is they both seem to highlight this contrast in the way in which God deals with the rich and the poor. Almost as though God has something against the rich and somehow uh, favors the poor. The rich and the noble in both songs are brought down. The poor and the humble, by contrast, are exalted. And we could easily confuse this with something social rather than spiritual. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a little while. In many ways, what you have here in Luke 1, in Mary's song, to make it very simple, is the song of the kingdom and the coming of the king. It signals the dawn of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally beloved of the Father, now to be begotten in time, born of flesh. And it's fitting that Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary, the mother of God, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is actually rather fitting that she should write a song fully saturated with Scripture, fully saturated with the Old Testament, fully saturated with the kingdom. Uh, in many ways, not only does Mary's song echo the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, it also echoes many of the Psalms as well, as they all intersect at the coming of Jesus. So I want to make a, a simple point here by way of summary in this first point. The Bible is full of song. And one of the primary ways that the people of God learned the Word of God was by singing it and singing about it. They not only heard it, they sung it. The Bible is full of song, and our hearts should be as well. If you want to know what the structure of this psalm is, it has four strophes, or something like a four-point sermon. Mary praises God for what He has done for her. Mary praises God for what He has done for His people. Mary praises God for God's justice, 
And then finally, Mary praises God for remembering his covenant promise. But what story does the song tell? Let's think about that for a little while. What is the story that this song sings? Well, the word for magnify, uh, megaluno, means to make great or to amplify. In many ways, the story of the song is one of God's glory. That is what Mary is foremost singing about. Because of what God has done in history, God ought to be glorified. If you look at verse 46, it almost sounds like a lyrical version of Westminster Shorter Catechism 1. Mary obviously had a copy of that. She, she didn't. It wasn't around then. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. According to the Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And verse 46 contains both of those ideas, glorifying God and rejoicing in Him. This is in many ways the goal of the song and the chief end of man. Rejoices is a phrase that comes up uh, in many ways throughout the psalm. It is in some ways a summary of it. She's not simply magnifying God, she's rejoicing, bringing glory to God, but also rejoicing in her heart. And notice the beautiful title that she gives to God at verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What is the ground of Mary's rejoicing? What is the reason for bringing God glory? Is that Mary recognizes she has need of a Savior, and in God she has a Savior. It's the type of phrase that we so often could easily even take for granted that we refer to God as our Savior. But for Mary, it's almost like she explodes right out of the gate on this very note. I need a Savior, and I have one in God, one who would deliver us, not simply from difficult circumstances, but one who would ultimately deliver her from the wages of her sin. God has looked upon Mary in what she refers to as her humble estate. God's glory is exalted in the midst of man's weakness and sin. By referring to her humble estate, what is she saying about herself? It's very important because so many people have misunderstood this song, what Mary says about herself and even about God. By referring to her humble estate, Mary knows that she is a sinful woman. She may be a daughter of the covenant, but she is a sinful woman. In fact, the very barrenness in view in this chapter for both her and Elizabeth, similarly in Hannah, uh, even that draws from the well of the curse. In other words, that when we think about the humble estate of Mary and barrenness, you have to think about Genesis 3 and the promise that God put upon the woman that in pain she would bear children. That the very dynamic of barrenness is all by itself a reflection of the curse. Elizabeth, earlier in the same chapter, to be an old woman and barren would be a, a sort of a, a, a story version of embodying the curse throughout the entirety of her life. And so Mary recognizes that this is her lowest state. She is a daughter of Eve. To say it this way, uh, there is physical pain in the act of childbearing, but do not overlook that there is emotional pain and barrenness. Mary knows the reality of her sinful estate. She is also an unmarried young woman. Uh, Her humble estate not only refers to her sinfulness, but even her circumstance. She is betrothed to a village carpenter. If you were alive in her day, this would be nothing to boast about. Uh, This is a very modest 
lifestyle. This is a very modest vocation with very few perks. And yet, in contrast to her lowest state, she gives this beautiful contrast that she will now be remembered as the blessed woman whose womb carried Jesus, the Messiah. And here you see this theme beginning to happen, where God takes things that are low and he lifts them up. And then the converse will prove true as well. God takes things that are high and he brings them down. Mary is of humble estate, but now future generations are going to call her blessed. Our Roman Catholic friends have completely misunderstood this word. Really botched it. I had a conversation with several yesterday on this very subject. Why is it that we refer to uh, Mary as uh, the blessed mother of God? That, that's an idolatrous title. It's, it's really bad to not only refer to as the mother of God, uh, but in Roman Catholic theology, from this point forward, Mary becomes sinless. That's the official view. And it, and it doesn't stop there. Not only is she sinless from this point forward, she's able to enter into heaven on behalf of her own righteousness, and she is so righteous in Roman Catholic theology uh, that, that she is one uh, that you can go to. She can intercede for you almost as though equal to Christ himself. In fact, uh, one of the reasons why many pray this rosary to Mary, it, it's, it's, it's sort of funny, but it's really not, it's actually quite bad theology, but the thought is if, if you really want to get to a guy, who should you get to first? His mama. Because mama can get him to do anything. But isn't that a terrible way to think about not simply the work of our Savior? Even Mary... For the things that I've just said to you that our, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church say about Mary are nowhere found in the text. Mary never refers to herself that way. Scripture will never refer to her that way. And this theology that somehow rose up and has become very popular is actually quite a dark and injurious. If Mary enters heaven, it's not because of her righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the one within her womb. So again, uh, Mary never exalts herself that way, and yet uh, she will become blessed in the sense of being remembered as the woman who carried in her womb baby Jesus, the Savior of the world. And what does she have uh, to say about God? Verse 49 is beautiful. For he who is mighty has done great things, and notice how she personalizes at this point, uh, great things for me, and holy is his name. Holy is his name. What is one of the best things that we ever describe God as? It's holy. What is one of the most popular titles in the Bible for God himself? It is holy. Holiness sets him apart from us. Holiness exalts him above us. Holiness makes us recognize that in his presence, although he is holy, 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 uh, we are not, and yet he who is holy, holy, holy is the one who has done great things for Mary. He has shown in the following verses uh, his mercy towards those who fear him from generation to generation. I, I love the way that Mary interacts on the one hand, reflecting on the things that God has done for me, making it very personal. In my lowly, humble, broken estate, God found me, he rescued me, he delivered me, he has done this for me. And then at the same time, if you look at the verses that follow, <clears throat> he has shown his mercy to those who fear him, notice verse 50, 
from generation to generation. He who is holy and has done great things for me has done great things for us. Not just for me, but also for us. He has shown strength with his arm. This is not by flexing, but rather by acting. What is she referring to? God acted in history. He came down and he scattered the proud. He brought down the mighty. He defeated strong armies. He toppled kingly thrones. This is the language of the Exodus. Mary looks back in the rearview mirror of history and recognizes that even uh, the momentary relief and salvation she is experiencing in her own life must be seen against the backdrop of this is what God has done for his people. This is what God does for his people. He is a God who saves. He is a God who saves us. He is a God who saves me. He is a God who has acted in our personal life. He is a God who has acted in the story of his people. He is a God who found the people of Israel sitting in a great darkness. They were brought low. They were in a humble estate. And the proud stood over them and exalted them and injured and oppressed them. And God acted. He showed the strength of his arm, not by flexing, but by acting. He acted And he did so in such a way that he redeemed them and he saved them. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brought down the mighty from their thrones and he exalted those of humble estate. This is what God does. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So let's engage this for a moment. Why does her song and Hannah's song use this language, almost as though making the impression that God favors the poor and opposes the rich. Is that what this is about? Is it a material thing that is in view, a narrowly social thing that is in view, or is it a spiritual thing? First of all, it may be helpful to understand, I'm going to use a big phrase, I'm going to explain it. Okay? The big phrase is Deuteronomic principle. If you say it backwards three times, it says nothing. But if you say it once and think about it again, you can get it. Deuteronomic principle, and it means uh, simply this. It was an idea, a a sort of point of view, alive and well uh, in the time of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Very simple. If you do good, you get good. And if you do bad, you get bad. A very easy illustration is the story of Job. The story begins, Job is a wealthy man. Job has a big family. Everything seems to be going great for Job. And the the take on that would be, Job is a righteous man. And because Job is a righteous man, if you do good, you get good. He got good, he did good. That's the first part of it. But what happens when good things are taken away? When he loses his family. When he loses his health. When he loses his wealth. Then the three stooges, I mean his three counselors, his three friends show up and they say, Job, look, this is not complicated. You know how this works. This is the way it is. If you do good, you get good. And you had good, Job, but now you don't anymore. So God must be punishing you. You must have done something wrong. Job, what'd you do? Because you've obviously lost it all. And we often, uh, this is, by the way, Not good theology, uh, but it is often the way that we think. 
That's why we easily get confused when we hear this language of God opposing the rich and favoring the poor. It's not a uh, material thing uh, foremost, but we often tend to think that way, that if I were doing better, I would have better. My health would be better. My family would be better. My wealth would be better. And if things are not going my way and I don't have those things that I want, we apply wrongly this Deuteronomic principle to our lives. That it must be that I've done something wrong and God is punishing me for it. And it puts us in an awkward place in our relationship with God where we become like a little girl picking petals off of a flower. He loves me. He loves me not. He must be mad at me because this is happening. Or even worse, I must be all that because things are going well. That's the Deuteronomic principle. Okay? And uh, when you look at the Magnificat, that is not what Mary is teaching. It's not what she's singing about. She's rather uh, reflecting on the fact that there are those who look at themselves as spiritually rich and do not recognize how actually poor they are. And then there are those who realize that they are spiritually poor and they have no riches apart from God. This is what Jesus will teach in the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble before God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall see God. They shall enter heaven. They shall enjoy the presence of God. What Mary sings is what Jesus taught. God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. And those who think that they are spiritually rich, often because of the basis of their material riches, are wrong, and God opposes them. But those who realize, like Mary, that they are empty, that our souls, apart from the work of God's Spirit, are like a barren womb, and that apart from Him filling us with His Spirit, we are under His wrath and His curse, that only those who understand the world and themselves that way will see the kingdom of God. Mary's language is spot on. God does oppose the proud. God does lift up the humble. Notice again how she celebrates this in the sense of what God has done for me, but also in the sense of what God has done for us. Mary's song is not just about her own personal relationship with God, but in many ways, even more so, her song is about God's relationship with his people. He is my God and he is our God. He was with us yesterday. He is with me today and he will be with his people forever. The song crescendos in verse 55 in a way that may not look like a crescendo by referencing Abraham. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. As it was with Abraham, so it is with us. Mary sees herself as a daughter of Father Abraham. And there's something remarkable and important about that. What is it? It's that God made a promise to Abraham that the people of God continue to cling to down to this very day. His promise and his word will not fail. And what is that promise? But that I would be your God and you will be my people. This is what Mary ultimately sings about. God has not forgotten his promise that he will be 
our God, and we shall be together and individually his people. But how then is that ultimately accomplished? A forever promise that I will be your God and you will be my people as made to Abraham, kept in Israel, and then sung by Mary. Well, that's what brings us to our final point, the magnificent Savior of Mary's song. Not all songs are given great names. This one really was. It really was given a great name. Whether you call it the Magnificat or Mary's Song of Praise, it's a great way to think about this song. In order to best appreciate this song, we should maybe ask the question, what makes it last a little longer than the one-hit wonders of the 80s that you probably can't even name anymore? Or that violent intrusion into human history of Britney Spears' music that disappeared almost as quickly as it came, like so many others do and, and rightly should. But a song like this remains. Why is it that it remains? The answer, on the one hand, is threefold. It is inspired by the Spirit. It is not just about her, but about God's relationship to his people. In this sense, it's even different than many of the Christian ballads written today that are so focused on the individual, they almost forget the God they were supposed to be written about. But what really makes this song last is its relationship to the Savior. And I want to explore that for just a little bit. I want you to think about the song in the sense of what it meant the day that Mary sang it, but then think about it also in the way that Jesus fulfills it. It's not a song that stands alone and isolated in history. All by itself, it reflects on the past, but then it becomes a part of the past. Mary sings about a child in her womb. Mary sings about the present and yet the future. Mary sings of promises made, promises fulfilled, but those promises are not fully fulfilled the day she sings this song. Jesus is yet within her womb. Quite remarkably, earlier in the same chapter, John the Baptist is in the womb of Elizabeth. And when John the Baptist and Jesus get within a few feet of each other, John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaps as though leaping for joy. It's, it's a funny word. It's like a person jumping off the ground. I'm not quite sure how that felt for Elizabeth. But John leaps for joy. Why such joy? It's because this song, like the Psalms of the Old Testament and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, must be sung not simply in light of what happened in the past, but what happens ultimately through Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, the fulfillment of all the Bible's songs. Christmas, in a certain sense, is nothing without Easter. Mary's song is nothing unless Jesus is actually born. But even his being born is being born to live and to eventually die and rise again. Jesus will take Mary's words into his own heart when you think about the relationship that begins Inside her womb is baby Jesus. And how many moms have sung to those little bundles? When did you, beloved, first begin hearing the songs of the covenant? For many of you, it was actually in the womb, just as it is with Mary here in this text. 
When did many of us first begin to hear the language of Scripture? It was not when you first had ears exposed to error, but rather inside the womb. Jesus will take Mary's words into his heart. They literally become like part of his lifeblood. The poetry of her soul is already, if you will, instructing his heart. And he will not only learn these songs, he will sing these songs, and then when he comes from her womb, he will live these songs all of his life. This song is a summary in many ways of what God will do in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He is on the one hand Mary's child, and yet he is her savior and her God. Isn't that remarkable? Inside her womb is her savior and her God. The one she sings about, this blows my mind, and the one she will one day sing to. The one she will teach to sing the songs of the Savior. And then he will begin to understand those songs, beloved, literally are the poetry of his soul. The story of his life. The prophecy of his entrance into the world and the prophecy of his exit from it. He will look upon, just as she sung, her lowest state, but not simply those of hers alone, but those of his people as well. He will address not simply the barrenness of Mary and Elizabeth, but all those who are under sin, its curse, its scarring and marring effects. And just as she sung, he will do great things. Why? Because holy is his name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will he do? How will he show strength of his arm? But by bringing about just as Mary sings, both justice and mercy. Jesus will come and he will oppose the proud, those who are spiritually self-exalted, who are rich in their own minds and who measure by worldly standards. He will say, you are far, far, far from the kingdom of God. But those who recognize their lowliness, their humility, their brokenness, their hunger and their thirst, their great need for a righteousness that comes from outside of them, they shall walk away satisfied and ever dine at the table of the kingdom of God. So he will bring justice to the proud. He will show mercy to the humble. He will defeat his enemies, even as Mary sings, by the strength of his arm, but again, uh, not by flexing his strength, but in many ways actually by being exposed in weakness as those arms that came from the womb of the Virgin Mary are stretched out upon the cross. Where is the strength of God in many ways most fully displayed? It's at the cross where strength is clothed in weakness, where righteousness is dimmed in the sense, that's not the way right way to put it, where righteousness is clothed as though it were in sin, where Jesus, though fully righteous, endures the wages of our sin, where he becomes, as is put in 2 Corinthians, sin for us, although he himself is perfectly righteous. And where is his triumph? If the Song of Mary celebrates the triumph of God in history over his enemies, where is the triumph to be found? This again Sorry, I have to make my Christmas point that is really misunderstood, I think, almost every year by at least one person. It's in the resurrection. 
Mary's song is not finished until Easter. Christmas is really nothing without Easter. But please don't understand that I usually get like one email a year from somebody who just can't figure out why I don't like Christmas. That's not the point. We have a tree. That's not the point either. What is the point? At this point, Jesus is still in the womb of Mary. The wages of our sin, beloved, at this point when Mary sings, have not been satisfied. He must be born, those nine months completed. He must live his life's journey completed. And he must die and rise again. And if he doesn't, this song truly is a pointless one-hit wonder. But when Jesus rises from the dead, this song of Mary becomes the song of God's people, and it becomes a song that arguably still echoes in heaven and will for all eternity. Let me make a few points in summary. What did Mary know? Mary knew she needed a Savior. And so do you and I. Whether rich or poor, don't miss the point. We, beloved, all have great need of a Savior. I was struck this morning driving here how amazingly quiet the road was. How few go to, Chris, go to church at Christmas? And even those Sometimes it do, just do for <clears throat> traditional reasons. But we should come knowing that we have a great need of a Savior, and God has looked upon us in our humble, lowly, desperate estate. And yet, this song becomes so wonderful because it's not a song for the hopeless. It's rather a song for those who find their hope in God, and specifically in Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is Mary's song. But it is also our song inspired by God himself. Who's the best songwriter in history? It's God. He gives the best songs. They're foremost about him. And they're beautifully for the sake of his people. Mary had reasons to sing. Uh, We do as well. I want to make another distinction. And that is between joy and happiness. There's a lot of joy in this song. But it actually doesn't talk much about happiness. And why do I make this point? Uh, Because uh, right now, most parents in the room are feeling the burden of making their children happy. And in some ways, it's an almost pointless endeavor because you know how this works. In about 24 hours, most of us will rush through the dynamic, things under trees, and then a little while afterwards, too much sugar, and then the sugar hangover begins, and the loss of interest begins, And a few days from now, so many of the things that were for a moment celebrated are quickly forgotten. That's happiness. Mary does not sing about happiness. Mary sings about joy. Joy you can't put under a tree or in a box. And joy is not easily lost or forgotten because joy is that which rises and transcends above this world. One of the most beautiful collections of sermons that John Calvin wrote, and he wrote a lot, are his songs and the nativity. If you're looking for a a book to read, John Calvin's Songs of the Nativity, where he writes almost a dozen sermons on songs about Jesus' entrance into the world. They're remarkably beautiful. <clears throat> and one of the reasons I find them so beautiful is that he wrote 
these songs of nativity, beautiful sermons, each of them in their own way expressing remarkable joy. Catch this point. It can be very helpful. Is that he wrote them in the context of tremendous loss, suffering, and persecution. Tremendous loss, suffering, and persecution. He wrote at a time where people were being killed for the faith. He wrote at a time when things like the plague were ravaging Europe. He wrote at a time uh, where the theology of the Roman Catholic Church dominated the known world. And people lived in great darkness. And he himself personally lost not only a child, but even his own wife. And he wrote songs of joy. Why do I tell you this? Because I know that for some of us, this is a really fantastic time of year. And I know for many others, this can be a difficult time of year. And that's why it's so important, beloved, that we distinguish happiness and joy. In the 1500s, things were serious. People weren't happy, but they had great joy. What do you have? Not what do you have that makes you happy. I have very little interest in that. What do you have that brings you joy? Lasting joy. Eternal joy. Resurrection joy. Those are likely the things that we should be focusing on. And finally, this truly is my final point. I'm struck by the fact that Mary knew the Bible so well. It makes me think about this question. If the scripture was the poetry of her soul, what is yours? Do you know the Bible well enough that you could compose a song tying together Bible verses like little strings, like little pearls strung together? What is the poetry of your soul? What what songs do you sing when you're not feeling so happy, but you're reaching high for heavenly joy? What words will be heard in your heart and home in the next 24 hours? Let me say it differently. Uh, Mary was taught the Bible. It was not read. It was spoken and it was sung in her home. I I actually have this hope for our church that we just take a moment. A week from today is New Year's Eve, right? So I'm, I'm teeing up your New Year's resolution for you. This is pastoral meddling but I admit it, how much of the poetry of Scripture is being heard in our homes these days? How many songs are being sung? How many Bible verses are being read? If Mary was a daughter of the covenant who had this stuff sung to her and echoed to her in the spirit of Deuteronomy 6, shouldn't the same be of our homes? And tomorrow... When you do all the other things that you might do, I have this encouragement for you. Sing. As a family, I know it sometimes can be hard. Individually, I once pastored a lady who had gone through remarkably horrible things. She was elderly, childless, divorced, an abuse survivor, She loved to write poetry, and she loved to sing. In her own language, she had a terrible voice, and she lived alone, but she was never alone. That's why she loved to sing. What is the poetry of your soul? 
And will that poetry be heard in the next day? Might it be? Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for this hymn of praise written by a daughter of the covenant who to be known as Mary, the mother of Jesus. We marvel at the miracle of the incarnation. We marvel that Jesus, the son of God, would become a son of man, that he would come into this world by way of a barren womb, that he would take upon himself the curse in all of its fullness, that he would obey the law of God in all of its totality, and that he would go to the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that his story and that song did not end there. We thank you for the way that he has triumphed over sin, over death, and even over evil. And we ask, O Lord, that you'd help us to find ourselves among those who recognize their spiritual poverty, that in Jesus Christ we might know what it means to become truly rich. And we ask, O Lord, that you would help us, even within our own hearts and homes, to sing the songs of the covenant, that the poetry of the covenant would truly be the poetry of our souls. Lord, we pray for those who are broken and tried at this time of year. We pray for those who will find much to celebrate. And we ask for all of us, O Lord, that you'd fix our eyes upon Christ, that your name would be glorified in us, not simply on Christmas Day, but Lord's Day by Lord's Day, and every day might we glorify and enjoy you together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.